0: This is Jeff Haley with another Twang Twang Shaka Boom podcast. And today we're going to be interviewing Sila Misra, who's a Austin singer and songwriter. She's been making music for over 25 years, and she's been friends with Chris, David, and I that whole time. And our careers have kind of weaved in and out of each other a little bit, and she's going to tell us all about it in today's podcast. We're going to extend it out a little bit. And really get to know Sila better if you don't know her already. And I learned some things too in this conversation we had a few weeks ago. And she's just put out a record this month called Cool. And um, as I thought about this interview after we did it, I think that the story here is about someone who's extremely talented. Um, She's, As she calls herself, she's a maker. And even though she's put out over 10 records... This is probably her best record ever because she's taken control of the production process and she is making all the final decisions. And I'm really proud of her because I think that it's beautiful to hear that somebody could be on that journey and get where they're finally going, wherever they're, whether they're 20, 30, 40, whatever it is. It's great to have artistic control, I think. And she's a really special person. So check out our interview. I think that we have to address the elephant in the room, which is the global COVID pandemic. How are you dealing with that?
1: You know, I know a lot of people are really struggling, and this has been very topsy turvy. Especially not just health wise, but financially, people have really been struggling. But I have to say, personally, for my life, uh, I think I've been thriving somewhat in the lockdown situation. I, you know, live with my husband, John and also we have a roommate Scott who is now back at his office but for the first several weeks they were working from home as well and I don't know if it was just them having them here or what I mean they're on the other side of the house but I've just been so productive and it was good because I was really overwhelmed right before this whole thing happened I was really overwhelmed and had uh, a lot of deadlines, which is only my fault because I work for myself and I had out loud said, you know, before the pandemic was a thing, had said out loud, if everything were to just stop and everything were to get cancelled, I would be totally fine with it. And then everything stopped and got cancelled. And I got to hunker down and work on things that I really, that really needed my attention. Wow. Man, I just need everything to just stop so I can get caught up and really, um, Put in what I need to put in. All this other stuff I'm doing, and I'm still pretty overwhelmed. I still, I'm still behind the ball, but I'm not simultaneously like running rehearsals and and having to get ready and be presentable to do a show and and get in that headspace to be in public. Not having that, having to do that switch of, of preparing myself to be in public on a stage has been really nice.
0: Well, when I was thinking about this interview. I was thinking that you and Johnny and David and Adam Bork are all people that just create. Like Creating is what you do, no matter what medium you're using. You just, for some reason, you have this need to create and you don't stop creating. Sense. Yeah. So like you're saying that this during this epidemic is actually giving you more time and probably push you into a different zone than you would have been otherwise also creatively.
1: Yeah, I had some plans. Um, of things I wanted to do and had no idea where the time was going to come from to do them because the things I wanted to do were things I didn't know how to do yet. And so I was going to figure it out on the fly. and I thought, well, oh, I'll just be staying up really late all the time doing that. you know that's that's the time I'll put aside for that. And now I'm like going to bed at reasonable hours and even taking the weekend off. So it's, it's pretty cool. I did work yesterday, but not a ton. You know, I can choose to put in an hour or so on a weekend, but mostly I'm just like sitting around with a dog in my lap, you know, drinking iced tea on the weekends. It's nice. And I hadn't been scheduling breaks like that into my life for myself for years. So I just constantly felt behind, constantly felt, if I relaxed at all, that I was failing, like falling behind on work. So this is really nice. Taught me some stuff about probably like how I work best.
0: Musician's lifestyle is kind of uh, not regular biorhythms, I don't think.
1: Yeah, I think the musician lifestyle is kind of a myth, too. I mean, there's a lot of people that live that way. And there are a lot of very regimented, organized musicians and artists. I mean, some some of the visual artists, some of the most organized, meticulously organized people I know are visual artists. And not just in their work, like in their entire life, everything has a place. The house is always clean. The clothes are always you know they're always presentable, even when they're you know trying to, being slovenly, they're still presentable. You know, I'm not that way.
2: I you, never you have
1: that. been I don't even I don't know how to be that way. I don't get it, but I do uh, I have a lot of appreciation for it and admiration for it.
0: So what is um one are the big projects you're working on right
1: now? Well, for myself, making videos for this new record, I've been doing animated videos for my, my hope. My plan is for every track since the CD release party is most likely going to be gigless because I don't have really have confidence to do that or to ask my band to do that maybe even this year at all. So I think what I, I want to do is kind of have a movie that's basically playing the whole record, but with these animated videos. So that's the big project I'm working on. I have two commissions that I need to get done and a a possible third, that's another video, but I've got some paintings I'm doing for a book and then an album cover, doing some drawings for um, an album cover for a friend, so.
0: And your record's all finished?
1: My record's all finished. It is being uh, hyped, (laughs) but besides, yeah, yeah. We're hyping. We're in hype mode. <laughs> got the t-shirts. T- we've got t-shirts. And, uh, I saw
0: the t-shirt on the on social media. Yeah,
1: I should send you one.
0: Looking good. You got your model. Yeah. In-house model.
1: In-house model. You're going to way put way one on,
0: you're gonna have to put one on your dog, too.
1: Yeah, I would swallow her. She's tiny. That's actually not a bad idea. I should make them into dog t-shirts. <laughs> I bet that would go for well.
0: So let's go back to the beginning. Do you remember the first song you ever wrote?
1: Don't, I'm not sure that I remember the first one I ever wrote. I know that it was terrible. <laughs> and I played it a lot. <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> if something's bad, the only thing to make it better is by playing it a
1: lot. <laughs> I don't remember the first. One. Oh, wait. I remember that I had been left alone with a four track, a guitar, a microphone and a TV that didn't get cable. And that I incorporated noises from the television and stuff, and I made a recording. And I actually was like, well, that was cool. And that was really fun. I want to do this all the time, forever.
0: And how many songs do you think you've written?
1: Like that are on, that I play, that are on records and stuff? No, just the process, you know? Oh, you know, a couple hundred, probably, maybe a thousand. I don't know. Most of it's trash. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, like when you, you know, photographers will show you. You know, they go on a shoot and, you know, some even like the greatest photographers, like you look at the film, you know, they do the contact sheets that have all of the pictures and there'll be hundreds of pictures that got that one or two that made magazine cover or something. I mean, it's the same thing with songwriting. You write a bunch of crap and then sometimes you, you just scrap them for parts or sometimes you're like, well, that had to get out of my system to, you know, you're just mining for things. Yeah,
0: even some of Prince's songs aren't the greatest.
1: Even some of
0: Prince's songs.
1: You know he was human, right? I bet if if we have heard songs by Prince that we're like that's not the greatest, that means that there's a trash heap full of crappy songs that never made it to public consumption by Prince.
0: Well, I mean now that's considered gold by the Prince estate. They're going to let it out bit by bit.
1: I'm sure he threw plenty of them away. I mean, the guy had a brain. You do that. You don't don't let see the light of day because, you know, it's awful.
0: I listened to the podcast about um, 1999 and it was really good. And they interviewed his engineer. And she said that he was at that time he was recording like three songs a day. Yeah, that's pretty incredible.
1: I think since he played everything, that's pretty. That makes sense up to sundown. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we worked at that pace in the studio when we made this record. We kind of had to. And recording just means recording. I mean, there's always overdubs and mixing and all that stuff that needs to be done that takes longer, but getting those tracks, those initial tracks down, about three a day was sometimes four. was about the average.
0: And then um, describe the mixing process to me.
1: Well, Britton did that um, in, in the past. When I've worked with other people, I always insist on being there during the mixing process. And and I, you know, with when I worked with Brian Beattie, one of my jobs, I wrote I the faders, that was the guitar solo. So usually we had maybe five, four or five tracks of guitar solo and I just knit it together So I had a chart. I knew what I wanted and he would mix everything else and I'd write those faders and And I always liked that. And even with, um, when I worked with John Harvey at Top Hat, who had, he had an automated board and we would do that. We would, I would do some of the automation, but Britton, I think, anything like that would drive him absolutely mad. But also, you know, we would record with Britain, Britton Bison Hertz, his studio is Ramble Creek, recording in a, in the very outskirts of Austin. We would record all day, drive home exhausted, have something to eat, you know, stay up a little bit wired, go to sleep, and in the morning he would have rough mixes that were 85% there. It was crazy. Just hats. he would just put everything just so, nothing crazy. And then from there, I could really easily figure out, okay, what overdubs do I need? What do I want to have? You know, do I want to have double vocals on this? Would I like to have a, an interesting treatment on this guitar part? Or it made it a lot easier to figure out what I wanted to do next because his rough mixes were not rough at all; they were they were great.
0: And how many days would you do? Let's call it the icing on the cake. How many days would you spend like, fixing the songs up from that eighty-five percent to hundred percent?
1: Well. This record took a really long time to make, partially because I didn't have any money. But we did a recording session like in January. He'd give me rough mixes, then we would come back. You know, I think we came back the next... We were supposed to come back in June, but my dog was attacked by a pit bull and had to be taken to emergency surgery, and I had to cancel my recording session because they didn't want to leave her alone. And then, so we wound up finishing the record that November, and then it wasn't until, you know, the two recording sessions were done. We probably spent, it was maybe another four days getting it all polished up, and then he did the final mixes. And then it's just a matter of, you know, emailing back and forth. Like I make a little chart, each song, a column for me, a column for John, like what we're hearing that we think needs to be fixed. And he's great with that stuff.
0: Sounds like you're very visual.
1: I'm trying to be organized. I'm trying, I'm trying to be organized, yeah. But Britton just knows how to make things seamless and how to, how to set them just so. And he would kind of do like a a pre-master analog wash, you know, and then we sent off to Jim Wilson. Oh, I
0: know Jim Wilson.
1: Yeah, good old Jim Wilson.
0: He mixed um, two different 2020 projects.
1: Oh, he mixed them?
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah he, Well, he, he he remastered one and we did a remix, but then we decided to to scrap that and go with our original mix from from 20 years before. But then he um, he mixed one of our he mixed Twanger. Um, I was just listening to a little bit of that yesterday. And I, I love this thing with the, the tambourine, the way it was kind of swoosh from one side to the other.
1: Yeah, people don't take advantage of panning as much as they should. I mean, maybe they do. I don't listen to as much new music as I should, but i was
0: listening to your record the other day and i did notice that the guitars were hard panned sounds like that was your decision not jim's decision or 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 well jim
1: mastered the record Uh um yeah oh britain will always pan and i'm like can you pan them harder can you do
0: (laughs) were those all the way were they
1: were they i don't think so but it was yeah they're close And I try to stay, for Brit- with Brit I try to, I don't hover over the board. I mean, there's a couch in the back of the room and I just sit there and yell out adjectives and that works better than pulling up a chair next to him or standing over his shoulder. <laughs> yeah. You
0: unpack your adjectives.
1: I did, yeah. He, he gets me, or at least he pretends to very well. So either way, it's fine with me.
0: All right, next question. What part of the Austin aesthetic um, do you think you connect with the most?
1: You know, I've been here for a really long time, and uh, it's changed a lot. I don't even, you know, when you've lived somewhere for a long time, I don't know I can, like, divide it out into aesthetics. This is home, you know? I I own a house. I've been living in South Austin for a very long time. I, I think I'm a South Austin person, but that could change. She can wear
2: high heels And dress like an angel with a laser pointer, she'll dissect your doom.
0: and she won't... In terms of the music you're making today, how does how's Austin influenced that music? I mean, I know it's influenced it incredibly, but what do you feel most comfortable saying is Austin infused in your music?
1: It would be the musicians. I mean, there is a level of Talent and skill here that's just overflowing. It's pretty incredible. And I got some of the cream of the crop on this record that bring more than just like skill and agility on their instrument. There's so much personality in their playing. Someone like Emily Gimble, everything she touches just becomes. So, like, human and nostalgic, and I don't know how she does it. She just has this sense of melody and timing that's very sweet and very distinctly her, but also kind of sounds vintage to not take advantage of something like that when you have it okay, so freely you your disposal. I mean, these are my friends.
0: in in that camp too right
1: oh heck yeah and they used to they play together quite a bit having andrew pressman on bass His sense of movement as a bass player, you know, of when to just sort of take off and when to just, you know, be that solid, funky, double-headed thing with the drums is perfect. Mm. He's a really musical bass player. He's melodic, which can be incredibly annoying. It's supposed to be a rhythm instrument and it has to be done right. You know, it has to be done with taste and it has to be done right for it to work and he has just a sense of that he's he's never too wordy but he does have if he puts a lot of movement it is playing and so i love recording with him because he was on my last record as well and i think that would be it would be the it would be the the players wilson Marks on electric guitar that guy it's like he's really poetic as a player and he's fun he's like really playful he's like a silly bill frizzell so I think that would it <laughs> would Frazzell's be Bill a little silly. <laughs> <laughs> He's an even sillier Bill Frizzell. <laughs>
0: I was listening to, last night to um, Johnny Gowdy interview, George Reef. Didn't you? I know you're a fan. But did you record or play with him?
1: Well, George um, was in Scrappy's band. I would occasionally sing backup. But okay. I've known George for a long time. I miss that guy. He's a sweet man. Mostly when we hang out, we talked about food.
0: <laughs> he's a chef.
1: Yeah, he's a chef, an excellent baker.
0: And um, I saw on your social media that you were delivering bread the other day. What's that all about?
1: So I have a very small micro business. Um, I'm the South Austin Bread Fairy. So I make homemade bread and deliver it to clients. I have about 14 clients. Some that get from me every week, some are every other week. Yeah, do my deliveries and get paid monthly, and it's great.
0: The um, the lady from Glass Eye, she's a
1: candy um, baker McCarty. too, she's right? One of my clients.
0: Ah, uh-huh. yeah. She's a baker too, isn't she?
1: Um, I yeah. I think she, her specialty is pies. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah. She used to do the pies. Uh, you remember Forays? Uh-uh. It was on South First. I think it's now at Torchies. She used to make pies over there. And yeah, she's made really good pies.
0: So when I was a teenager, Glass Eye was one of my favorite Austin bands, although I wouldn't say I'm an expert. And uh, I think that um, the bass player and singer of Glass Eye, Brian Beatty, has a really strong voice. He's a really unique musician. And you've worked with him a ton, right?
1: Yes. Yes, my first three, four records I did with him, and he record, recorded the first Torch record, my that little jazz thing I had for a while. He's actually on this record, he plays accordion on one track. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: but I learned so much, I learned a lot from Brian. Um, as far as producing and like what I want to hear, and just those delicious, playful little things. And I know that people who know Brian or have worked with Brian would be able to hear my record and be like, "Oh, that was like a Brianism." That was it. He's working with him was like it was like going to school. It was great. I learned a ton. He's really open and and free with information, and it was very cool. But you know, producing the record myself, I've also worked with with other producers, and but producing the record myself, it was way overdue. And it was nice to not have to have those conversations of convincing someone <laughs> to let me do what I wanted to do. Just like I'm just gonna do what I wanna do and then see what happens. Because you can always do it and then undo it if you if you listen to it and go like, yeah, that's not working. But you can't if you don't do it and then later you're listening, you're like, Yeah, that should have been done. That's always a little frustrating. So
0: you're the executive producer of your new record. Yes. And how many records have you done where you're the executive producer?
1: And this is the first one where I'm okay. the. Oh, I, I'm it's just me. The last two I did the uh, the last one um, I co-produced with Anthony, Anthony Costa and the one before that I co-produced with Ari Hest and Darwin Smith, and then and those
0: are called. Tell us the names.
1: So the last one was called Track You Down, and that was with um, Anthony Costa and the one before was called Valentine.
0: I was going to ask you about Torch too because. Um... I was kind of there at the beginning of your your jazz singing.
1: You were you you were the one that made all that stuff happen. You forced me.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I didn't want to.
0: <laughs> I didn't want to. Do it. I didn't want to. Do it. <laughs> well, you should probably tell that story. It's it's a pretty good story.
1: Do you know that story? Do you remember the story?
0: Does it have to do with uh, Thundercloud Subs?
1: No, it, it <laughs> was, I was, go, was uh, became a regular attendee at the Jazz Pharaoh shows. You guys played a lot. It's amazing how much you could play back then. You had at least three, I'm going to say possibly four or weekly shows. You played the Elephant Room once a week. You played Lavaca Street. Um, there was some other bar you guys played. And then you played with Coolio Cafe weekly. That was Thursdays. I think it was Wednesdays or Fridays at the Elephant. And then the other one was at Lavaca Street. Anyway, I
0: was <laughs> we going shows. We do Wednesdays and Fridays at uh, Happy Hour at the Elephant.
1: Yep, and I and I was going to Kulodoo Cafe as well. But there was a point where I was a little loaded. I was outside waiting for a cab, dancing around in a puddle, because I had these awesome army boots. My feet wouldn't get wet. And I, I like that. And I was singing uh, Them, There their eyes while dancing around in a puddle, thinking I was alone. And you said, you have to do that song with us. And I said, no, I don't. And he said, yeah, you do. Uh, You don't have it for, have it ready. I'm gonna call you on you. And you guys had already given me a bunch of, like, you gave me Anita Sings the Winners and Anita Sings the Most. Stan gave me a couple of records, including uh, Miss America, the Mary Margaret O'Hara record, you know that record? Oh, Good Night, that's a good one. (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's from the late 80s, or early 90s, I'm not sure. Sounds a little bit of a departure band. from like strict jazz, but brilliant, brilliant record. But you guys gave me records, I think, let's you or somebody, maybe it was Tony or Joey. Well, this was pre-Joey. Might have been Tony gave me a Caetano Voloso record. And I just listened and listened and listened. And then that kind of spread out to me, seeking out other stuff. But yeah, you guys made me, made me learn those tunes and sing them with you. <laughs> Made you. <laughs> and it was great. It was great for me. I loved it.
0: So around that time, I, I think people, when they heard you singing, they were super duper impressed. You were doing jazz, sit, you were sitting in with jazz groups and you were starting your own jazz group and no, you were well, also starting to sing there. background vocals with people, right?
2: Well,
1: when when we started with the Pharaohs, when I started singing with the Pharaohs was the same time I started playing open mics, doing my own stuff at the Cactus. It was several years before, before Torch happened.
0: Okay. Um, uh, so both things were kind of hap- happening simultaneously. Sila, yeah. the jazz artist and Sila the songwriter.
1: It was very confusing for people.
0: <laughs> I'm still confused.
1: <laughs> the whole thing was it's still very confusing for people. Um if people see a Torch album, they're like, So this is I have your CD called Torch. And I'm like, No, that's a that's a band. That's another band I have. There's three of those. There's three of those CDs.
0: And also background singing, like you were doing so three things at yeah. least. Maybe more girls gotta eat. (laughs) Well, um, how do you feel about those three different paths?
1: I mean, that's what you gotta do. You gotta hustle. If you want to, you want to make a living. I really enjoyed um, singing backup a lot. I, I did. So with Matthew electrician for a really long time, it took me all around the country. I got to see just about every state and Play different venues from small clubs and house concerts to larger places and and even some really historic places and some festivals and that was great and Matt is so solid and he's really organized it's not you know touring with him is um, about as easy as touring can be because it is really practical there's no like crazy up all night debauchery and wildness <laughs> you can it's it's pretty it's pretty uh responsible. And, and friendly and um that was really good for me i learned learned a lot and then also because of a of singing backup for matt got a lot of their backup work i was mostly just singing with people who would let me before then and occasionally being asked to be on someone's record but once i started singing with matt i got definitely got more work that way
2: mm-hmm.
1: and i did like that that was a nice there's something about singing backup you got no gear to haul and the pressure's off of you, you know, you're not in the front, but you're still kind of in the front because you're using your face as the instrument. You know, you kind of get to have the, both, the the best of both worlds. You know, then it's done. You just walk off stage or count the tips. That's usually your job. <laughs> so you don't have any gear at all.
0: <laughs> or, walk, or walk the tip jar.
1: Yeah, No, no. I don't think people from the stage should be walking the tip jar. That's just weird.
0: <laughs> you never know. I
1: probably that. did it once or twice, but after a while it was like, that's frowned
0: upon that's you know um have you ever read chasing the train about john
2: coltrane
0: no said like one of the most important parts things that happened to him in his life was he was in a a rhythm and blues band where it was expected that the tenor saxophone player would walk the bar would walk up and down the bar and play a solo like on the bar (laughs) and he 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 detested that
1: people just push money into his saxophone i bet they i don't
0: think he had to collect money in his horn but he just thought it was uh, demeaning
1: humiliating yeah
0: Okay, so I think um, I want to wrap up this interview with a question, um, a specific question.
1: I like your hair.
0: (laughs) Quarantine hair. So one thing that David said to me a while ago, which um, was insightful, he's an insightful person, is that one of the reasons why people like playing with Chris so much is that he's supremely supportive. Everything he does is in service of the song. And um, that's probably one of the reasons why people like you as a background singer. I bet you have that same vibe when you're on stage with your with the artists that you're working with. But you've worked with Chris a lot, too. And um, do you have any Chris stories you want to share or any insight?
1: Early on. Yeah, I, I worked with Chris and I'm so, so grateful I did. I, he was the first drummer I played with and he set a standard. He set the bar really high. He is so musical and not, you know, he's not bashful at all. He's he's got dynamics. Which is really, really important, and he's uh, very adept at all of the percussion stuff and knows exactly when it belongs. Do you remember? um, I think you guys were playing. What was that place? It was like it was out on Lamar. I guess it was like supposed to be a Cajun restaurant or something. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. And um, I think it was supposed to be the Pharaohs, but it was people were out and it was some mismatched thing band, and, and and he was eating and um <laughs> and also switching out his so he he was still playing with one hand took the <laughs> took the brush tucked it under his arm reached over got a fork full of food and then picked up like a tambourine or something and it was just it was just so smooth nothing was it's like he's got he's got the track running through his head and he can see the spots where you know where his part's gonna come in like he's playing it like that air guitar game on a computer. He has this big picture view of the song and he has it quickly. I remember recording with him and we we tracked a tune and he was on kit and then he said, okay, well, let's set up a microphone for me. I'm going to do some percussion. And we were like, okay, whatever. Like, didn't think, didn't know what he was going to do and figured like, well, if it's weird, we'll just get rid of it. He's, he seems to know what he wants to do. So let's let him do it. Set up a mic. And everything he used was all like hand stuff, like, you know, just stuff out of a bag he had with him. He had the headphones on, the mic was up, we didn't have the track running on. This was on my first record. We didn't have the track running on the speakers. So we're just watching him and this array of percussion stuff happening. And it sounded absurd. It sounded disconnected. It sounded like one piece didn't go into the other. We couldn't understand what he was doing and almost thought it was funny. And then listened back and it was unbelievable. (laughs)
2: It was actually a
1: song called The Triangle Song. We actually named it after The Triangle. <laughs> <laughs> because I said, told Brian I was keeping The Triangle in there, and I was going to name it The Triangle Song. But he what just did one pass. Oh, gosh, that must have been like 92. Oh, wow. 90, yeah. For that. yeah, he did like one pass with a microphone, and all his little trinkets set out in front of him. And And I had this understanding like, oh, he has this big picture view of the song and knows what he's doing
0: yeah he's orchestral
1: he's really he really is, and he set a standard for me and I have become you know I think it's partially his fault. I'm such a drum snob and I, <laughs> and I think playing with and hearing and appreciating a player like him has really kind of anything that doesn't reach that level like I'm just like no i don't I don't have time for this so when I met and heard john green who's, <laughs> you know cut from the same piece of cloth as Searle's. and you know he has his own his own style and stuff and we we listen and love a lot of the same music you know growing up but that was a no-brainer. no brainer
0: now John's a great player
1: Yeah, he's and a big he's Searle's fan as well.
0: I guess it's time to wrap it up
2: well thanks for having me you look song, up see, open up your lost and then found again oh, be close I'll sleep like a mouse